the these little these these moments. Uh, I want to I want to describe one to you for a second, and then and then talk about the vineyard. Uh, one of the big moments in people's lives is where God goes from being a word to being real. Now, a lot of times, God is real to people, and they don't know it's God. They don't recognize that God's at work in their life uh, for lots of different reasons. I don't want to explore that so much today. Uh, there's a phrase that we use around the vineyard and vineyard churches all, you know, all over. In fact, church, people use it all over the world. But about 40 years ago, just in the last couple of months, this, word, this phrase became a, a part of uh, the church's language. And it's this phrase, we're, we're right, what we're talking about uh, the last couple of weeks, and we're going to be talking about it for the next few weeks, is this little phrase, come Holy Spirit. And it's not like the church never heard of that before, but I want to tell you a story, because I have actually had a friend who was there, and this story happened. About 40 years ago, on Mother's Day, 1977, a young man shared his testimony at a, a small church service in a, in a high school gymnasium in Southern California, and at the end of, this, at the end of his testimony, uh, he prayed this, that simple prayer, come Holy Spirit, and this, the Holy Spirit began to move in this small church in such a powerful way uh, at, that, at that very moment. No one was, no one was prepared in, in any way for what happened. And some people call it the, the Mother's Day Massacre <laughs> because the Holy Spirit fell in such power like they'd never seen like that before. And that little church... At right from, from that Mother's Day moment, which, you know, is like late spring, uh, over the summer, they baptized a thousand new believers. I mean, that's not people that just prayed prayers and you never saw them again. These are, that was how many people were added to that little church over the course of a summer. And that little move of the Spirit became the Vineyard Movement. And now there's over 2,500 churches around the world. And, and growing, and it's actually it's accelerating right now. And this little phrase, come Holy Spirit, it just sounds so kind of like something you'd hear in church, right? <laughs> this is something you're, you're going to typically hear at the, at the checkout line at Walmart. But it, it is that for, for these, for many of those people, it was the moment in their lives where God became more than a word. Or maybe... God had become more than a word, but they didn't realize how big God was. So, one of the, the key marks, the distinguishing marks of this church that Jesus is building, is this phrase, or something like it. That, that Jesus said he was going to build a church, and this church was going to be, become so influential, despite its ordinariness. Despite its lack of political connection, despite its lack of, you know, of, of all the earmarks that make something uh, influential in our world, that he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a group of people, groups of people, who are, are you know, just the most ordinary people. Just like the, the story of the Bible begins with humanity being made out of the dust of the earth, right? Just, just regular people. And the people who 
we're in that first movement of the Spirit. After the Come Holy Spirit prayer, we're very ordinary people. But this Come Holy Spirit characterized everything for them after that. It became a part of the way they lived their lives. They began to see that God is really around and present and doing things, and even when they're not aware of it. So I want to I want to read three texts in the Bible and just make a simple point with each one. And because what I want to re, to try to, in a, in a sense, in our church, reintroduce what come Holy Spirit's about. What does it mean? And what I want to take you to at the you know at the end of, of the close of our gathering is, or maybe it, maybe not even the close of the gathering, that how do we make room? For the Holy Spirit to work uh, among us and in, in, in our lives, how do we do that? And I wanna, these three texts each have a point. I think they have, there's there's a lot in each of them, but I just want to draw out one simple point from each one and kind of link it together at, at, at the end and say this is how we do this. Okay, this is how we make room for the Holy Spirit. So if you have a Bible with you, open it to Luke chapter four. I want to read a short passage. Uh, right after Jesus was baptized, he, he came, he went out into the wilderness and was tempted, and then he came into where he was raised, in, in the area of Galilee, in Nazareth. And so in Luke chapter 4, verse 14 to 19, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. This is what teachers, rabbis did when they were about to teach. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your sight. Now, remember what we read before he entered the synagogue. He came back from the desert, and and, and Jesus was an unknown. He was a nobody. He He was just another Jewish guy. And no, nothing special about him after his baptism and this little jaunt in the desert. He came out and it says in the power of the Spirit. And if you read Matthew and Mark and John, he began to heal the sick. It describes all the things that happened leading up to this moment in the synagogue. And so he's telling them, listen, this is, he's framing his whole life. In fact, this is the, in terms of the book of Luke, this is explaining, this is what the rest of the book is going to be about. Jesus doing these things and why he did them. And the meaning of it. You know, what it means to us. So, he sat down, and the Jewish people, and, and this is, I think, where our life and their life intersects is at this point. The Jewish people were waiting for the good times to come. They were waiting for God to show up. 
They, were way, they knew that, that if there was a God, surely he would care about the poor. Surely he would care about prisoners and the sick and people in pain and loss and suffering injustice. And they kept waiting. You know, he's going to come someday. He's going to come. He's going to come. And then Jesus came on the scene and he started doing the things that they knew, the Messiah this Christ, this, you know, the, the, this really, really unique person, greater than Moses, was going to do. And Jesus came doing it. And just so they wouldn't be mistaken about who he was, he found that passage. He read it. And he said, this is happening today. Not tomorrow. It will happen tomorrow. But it's happening today, now, here. Now, the rest of the story doesn't go so well because the people don't like some of the things he says, and so they take him to throw him off cliff, which, you know, there's a whole lesson in that, that a lot of times when God comes and shows up, we want to throw him out of the building because, you know, we're not comfortable with what he tells us and what he wants from us, what he asks of us, his plans for us. But here's the point I want you to take away. Expect the Spirit to show up in the name of Jesus. They're in the synagogue where they had prayed and read the scriptures and studied them and then tried to obey them and, and worship God together. God showed up. The God that they read about and talked about was sitting among them. And it wasn't going to be sometime in the future. It was like now. And he said, today, this is fulfilled. The spirit of the Lord is on me. The Spirit of the Lord is still working in the name of Jesus today. He's going to work amongst us today. You're going to see it. You're, some, many of you are going to experience it. Today, this is being fulfilled. And so, the first thing you've got to take away from leaving room for the Spirit, making room for the Spirit, is just to say, we need to expect the Spirit to show up. And as some people like to say, show up and show off. But that's our legacy, is, is the people of God. Not just the vineyard, the people of God. So, let me ask you a question. If, if, if I were to pull out the expectation meter, and it had two little clips, and I clipped one to each of your earlobes, so you could look at the, the relative amount of expectation of the Spirit showing up here, where would the needle go? Would it go, oh, maybe, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe when the right big shot comes in here, who's, you know, all high-powered and all that. Or would it go to the other side and say, no, I think God can show up whenever he wants, anywhere, he can do whatever he wants, and I think he wants to show up among us. Because we're important to him. We're as important as anybody else. Where would the needle be for you? And I don't, I don't say this to, to shame you, to shame anybody, because when I was praying about this, I was thinking to myself, I need to get these guys to repent. Because they, they just don't have the expect, expectation that they should have. And over the last couple of days as I prayed about it, the Lord reminded me of this thing I keep saying to you guys. Take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see well enough to take the log out of others. And so I, I just laid, like last night, I laid in bed for a long time and just thought, Lord. And I realized, 
a lot of times, I don't come in here, even though I pray for the Spirit to show up and work, there's still a lot of times I walk in, and I know ways that I operate in gifts God's given me, and I'm not expecting those. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're not. Maybe you come in here every week and you're just going, where's God? Where's God? Where's he going to show up? Who can I pray for? You know, maybe you're like that. I want you to pray for me. But I want to give you a second. I'm going to go on to the next point, but I want, I want to give you a second to respond and don't just, you know, sort of shoot by this, this point about expectancy is. We need to acknowledge when we're not expectant for God to show up. And it, 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 it is a point of repentance that we need to recognize that God's trying to just gently tap us on the shoulder and say, I want to be at work in your life and in your friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters in Christ here at the Vineyard. And you play a role in it. Expectancy is something we all cultivate. And if you haven't been at that place, or you want God to show up, but only in the way that you're comfortable with, right? Has to work this way in this little box. And you realize, God just doesn't live in a box. I want to get outside that. I want to ask you to do something, just as, as I keep talking. And this will be kind of a, not an easy thing for you to do. I have two bowls of water up here. In fact, I, actually, they're bowls of air. But here's the... <laughs> I looked over. And this is a symbolic thing for you to do. There's towels here. And we've done this before at uh, other services we've, we have. I'd like you, if you feel like you, your heart is encrusted with lack of expectancy for God to show up, and that, that, this, that, that you want to acknowledge that. While I'm teaching, <laughs> never done this before, I want you to come up and just take some water. If you have glasses on, and just wash your face and say, Lord, just wash me from my unbelief. Just wash the unbelief off of me and begin to, to, to give me the faith of Jesus. Not just faith in Jesus, the faith of Jesus. Because Jesus was just like us. He had to have faith that God would work through him. He was fully human. He was fully God, but he set aside his godness to walk in the same kind of life that we live, in the same dependence. And so we can ask the Spirit to give us the faith of Jesus, just like we want the righteousness of Jesus, just like we want the patience of Jesus and the wisdom of Jesus because all God has was given to him and in faith, that's all ours. That's our inheritance. That's what the gospel says. So this isn't a show. This is something between you and God. But it's a, it's a symbolic action for you to say, Lord, I don't want to keep living with this lack of expectancy when I know you're real and you've worked in my life and you worked in my friends' lives. I just, I just want that washed off of me. And I just encourage you to do that as I teach. So we'll keep going. Uh, second, in, in John chapter 5, let me read this. Actually, I'm just going to tell you the story just to save time. Jesus goes to, there's a scene where Jesus goes to this uh, part, uh, there's a place in Jerusalem where there's a pool. And miracles would happen at this pool. It's, it's called the Pool of Bethsaida. And an angel would come into the water and stir it, and all these 
people with sicknesses were around it, and they were kind of like waiting. Here's that expectancy again. They're waiting for the water to get stirred, and then they'd all jump in. But the first person that got in got healed. And it, it became a place that was like a hospital. Just imagine that. And so Jesus walks in there. It, 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 he walks into this area, and he sees all the sick people, and he walks up to one of the sick people, a man who was paralyzed. And he looks at him, and he has this little dialogue with him. He says, it says, when Jesus saw him lying there, and he, and he learned he'd been there for eight years, he asked the man, now this is the question. If you're here and you need something from the Lord, he asks, this, he asks us this question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? well gosh, he's, he managed to come to this pool trying to get better. But Jesus still asked him, do you want to get well? And he had to answer that question because a lot of times we don't. A lot of times people don't. You get identified with being broken. And it, it kind of, your life kind of works that way. It's scary to think of life any other way than maybe the way we are. Even though we don't like the way we are, it's all we know. And a burden hands worth two in the bushes, they say. And so Jesus asked them that. And it says, the man said, I don't have anyone to help me. And so when the, the water's stirred, I can't get in. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, I've been stuck here forever. Then Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was healed... He picked up his mat and walked. Now, this happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders said, nah, no healing on the Sabbath, which was a perversion of the intent of the Sabbath and of, of his teaching. So this became a point of contention. Now, in John chapter 5, I want you to read this next part with me. Look at verse 17. When they, it says they were persecuting him. And now listen carefully to this dialogue. It's a real simple point you can get out of this. Jesus says, on the Sabbath now, my father is always working. To this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, they thought. He was just breaking their traditional view of the Sabbath. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Listen to this, this is the, this is the punchline. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. So, if we're going to make room for the Spirit, we have to learn to recognize what the Father's doing. Real simple. It's, a real, it's, 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 it's been a principle in our movement from the get-go. But it's not a simple thing to grasp. It says Jesus saw, like I see a crowd of people here. And out of the crowd of people, it says Jesus saw this one man. What drew him to that one man amongst all the other sick people? He was able to recognize something where the Father showed him what he was doing. Now, there's lots of precedents for this. John the Baptist, when he pointed out Jesus, he said, 
to his d- d- disciples. The one who sent me, God, said, when you see the Spirit on that person, that's the one that you're preparing the way. That's the one for whom you're preparing the way. And you see, all the way through the Bible, God was showing his people what he was doing because we're made to co-labor with him from the book of Genesis. God was working for five days and then he stopped, he made us, and he said, now you keep working. I've started the creation ball rolling. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. Create like me. Now, we don't create out of nothing in the sense that God does, where he just speaks and stuff becomes. But we take what is there under, under him and we create. We take the raw materials of creation and we combine them and draw out their potential for human flourishing. And from the very beginning, God's purpose was that we would work with him. And so Jesus says, to our surprise, there's a whole other realm of working with him that we're called to, and that's just, for example, healing. It isn't just the realm of medical professionals. It's the realm of all the people of God. So some of the ways that you can recognize the Spirit working like in a, in a group like this is you will see the Spirit highlight people, just like Roy's sitting underneath that light, and there's like a light on him. Okay? He always sits underneath that light because he likes the attention, but <laughs> nevertheless, that's a good example. But you will see the Spirit on people, and it's like their faces are shining. Just like Moses' face shined when he encountered God, just like Jesus was transfigured, the Spirit comes on people, and sometimes it's extremely dramatic. Most of the time, it's just subtle. And it's, it is something you can learn to recognize. It really is. Other times, people will tremble. You'll see people, they'll just be trembling. Or sometimes it'll be very exaggerated. People are shaking. I mean, shaking like you can't... If I shake myself, it looks a certain way because you can tell it's my muscles are causing the shaking. When God's power comes on people and shakes them, you, it, it looks like someone is shaking them. They're not shaking, they're being shaken. And sometimes, you know, people hit the ground and they just bounce on the ground like a fish on a hot sidewalk. Now, you may say, well, that's pretty easy to pick out. <laughs> I think I'll know when the Father's doing something there. That just, that, that can happen a lot. But most of the time, it's something gentle and people just feel it. The prophets would say that. Several of the prophets said that when God spoke to them, they trembled, their bones trembled. That when you encounter God, you encounter him not just on some philosophical plane of ideas disconnected from reality. You encounter him as an embodied spirit, a human. And your body, sometimes people's bodies heat up. Sometimes that's why people's faces shine. It's because they start heating up and there's like a thin little layer of perspiration. Or sometimes people get really cold. They get real, real cold. Like, like in our auditorium. <laughs> that's the first... That's, that's our manipulating 
uh, the spirit. <laughs> but but it, it's not something that has to do with the temperature around you. It's just something. Because I've seen people, I've prayed for people in rows of people, and this person will be really hot, and the next person will be unnaturally cold. And it's just something about who they are and God encountering them. Sometimes people... Uh, there are more dramatic, I don't want to go into the more dramatic ones. I, I, uh, a friend of mine told me this story, and I just recently heard another person uh, describe it. And uh, in the early days of the vineyard, as the spirit was moving really powerfully, some of the guys, uh, a team went from Southern California to Marion, Illinois. And in Marion, Illinois, they did a series of meetings. And in their second meeting, I think it was first or second meeting, they were having, the, the spirit of God was moving really powerfully the fire department broke into the meeting, in the middle of the meeting, and everything stops. You know, and these firemen are here, and they, they got their gear on, and they got, <laughs> they got hatchets and a hose, and everyone's, you know, like the spirit's moving, and, and, and everything stops. And they go, what's going on? And he goes, where's the fire? You know, we saw the fire. And in the belfry, it was a, it was a Baptist church, and it had a belfry. And there was a, there were flames shooting out of the belfry. They, they ran up the stairs to it, and it was just... It was, it was a spiritual flame. And the power of that meeting there, that, just to let you guys know, that's, the guy who was the pastor of that church was a guy you probably never heard of before named Randy Clark. And Randy Clark was just a little Baptist pastor, minding his own business, who got interested in this, invited the spirit there, and his life blew up. Real flames, but not flames that consume, like the burning bush. That's the dramatic thing. And you may go, well, John... When that happens, I'll recognize that, right? <laughs> Let me see that a couple of times. But it's not always that dramatic. Sometimes people fall down. And, and people ask me, why did they do that? And usually if you, if, you, if you interview them, they'll just say, I couldn't stand up anymore. They just couldn't. The, the, some, the, the fuse is blue. So how many of you, let's just ask for a show of hands, have, have you, like you've experienced something during a time where, like in a meeting, or you're being prayed for, or you knew God's drawing close to you, and you experienced some phenomena that wasn't typical for you, just raise your hand. Okay, many of us. Uh, now, sometimes people are experiencing it, and they're, we're, we're, many of us are really out of touch with our bodies, and God can be touching us. Like, I've watched people before. If you've ever seen those, uh, those old 1950s, films of people who were uh, pilots who were being trained for, you know, uh, for being uh, astronauts, and they put them on these jet sleds, you know, and then they turn the sled on, and they're on like rails, and their faces are going, because the wind is hitting them. I've watched the power of God come on people before and watch their skin ripple like that, like from their head to their feet, where it's just like, like wind is blowing on them, and they, they don't feel it. They're just sitting there. You experience the Lord's presence? No. <laughs> I remember in, when, in Europe, being on a ministry team there, and this guy, uh, he was a Scandinavian, and he's being touched by the power of God, just really being touched. And he said, I said, okay, did you experience God's presence on you? I feel nothing. God's not touching you. I feel nothing. And so the team's praying for him, and they're praying for, like, this physical thing, and he's getting healed. And uh, how's the pain? The pain is gone, but I feel nothing, you know? <laughs> are, we, are, are we finished? He goes, I'm finished. Just, 
just walks away, right? But we can be out of touch of, with our bodies, and God can be touching us powerfully and not knowing it. And so, you know, this is you know, the whole part of healing. And so, last, last story. So, takeaway. We have to learn to recognize the Spirit's activity. Because God works in the world and among us by His Spirit in the name of Jesus. That is, the, that is the testimony of the New Testament. God works in the world through his Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. And so we should expect that, and we should learn to recognize it. And then last of all, we have to learn to collaborate with him. Now, there's a story, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just summarize it. Paul has been arrested, and he's going to Rome, and he's, he's uh, traveling with soldiers who have him in chains, and he's on a ship. And on this journey, the ship is uh, caught in this storm that goes on for weeks, and it's just a, a horrible experience. They end up uh, getting shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and in, and in Acts 28, once they land, it says that the islanders are showing them unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us because it was raining and cold. So there were, there were you know... 300 or so people on this ship, and they all survive. And they're all, uh, you know, swimming ashore, and they get on shore, and the islanders are taking care of them. They had this big fire. And so Paul, it says, because they, you know, Paul's a prisoner, so he's probably like the lowest uh, person on the rung. And so they, they make him to go, go get some wood. And it says he's gathering wood. He puts it on the fire, and a, a, a viper that's driven out by the heat fastens itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, I wonder if Paul's looking at it like, well, that's interesting, snake on my hand, you know. Uh, it says, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer because he escaped from the sea. But though he escaped from the sea, justice, they believed in the goddess of justice, has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. So first the people think, Okay, Paul, because they have a worldview that, that there's a God and gods and angels and demons and, you know, supernatural things happen. They had no problem with that. But they didn't have a clear, you know, true worldview. Their worldview was mixed up. So when they, but when they saw Paul get bit, they thought, ah, you know, he, he should have drowned because he's probably a murderer. I mean, this is like, how do you just assume the guy's a murderer, right? Okay, he's got chains on. We've got, we've got that. Maybe he's done something wrong. But... The next thing they say is, when he didn't die, the people expected him to swell up suddenly because they'd seen these snakes, do you understand? They, they knew when you get bit by this, certain chain of events is triggered, you swell up and you die. The people expected him to die, and after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen, they changed their minds and said, he's a god. They, got it, they believe in the supernatural. They don't have a, you know, the, a good, clear categories Today, John Wimber said this years ago, he said today, because we don't believe in the supernatural, we would say, how do you explain a guy getting bit by what is obviously a deadly viper? We know cause and effect in our, you know, our scientific worldview, we've got it all figured out, we go, oh, it must be an old snake. That's, that's why he didn't die. Or the snake already bit a few people and it was out of venom. Right? I mean, we figure out cause and effect. But that, neither of those were true. He wasn't a murderer, and he didn't escape justice. 
He wasn't a god. The snake wasn't old. The snake wasn't out of venom. He was living under the protection of God. Jesus had said, when I send you out, you're going to get poisoned, you're going to get attacked, I'm going to protect you. So here's what happens next. It says, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hand on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick of the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. So think about this. Here's Paul, lowest guy on the rung. He's a, he is in chains, and he's, he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. He wrote some of his letters that we read today during this time when he was in prison and on trial for his life. He is, this is not the most, uh, it's not the best conditions to do ministry under, right? And yet, God uses him to heal this uh, official's dad, and then the word spreads, and, and he prays for all these people, and they get better. He understood that we get to collaborate with God to do the works of the kingdom. Everybody does. And even if you're in, you know, I'll tell you something. If, if I had just been shipwrecked <laughs> and I was out in the rain and cold and I'm picking up sticks, nobody else wants to, I don't even, why am I in chains? I haven't done anything wrong. I get bit by a snake. <laughs> I mean, this is going downhill, right? It's going from bad to worse. I'm not thinking about praying for anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm probably pretty, pretty cranky at that moment. And I'm sure, on a certain level, Paul was. He's a human being. But he also knew, I'm sent. I'm sent by God. He's with me, and he wants to use me. The Spirit is always, the Father's always doing something, right? Always doing something. Sometimes he's doing something. But he's always doing something. Something big, something Really, just gentle, something in between. Sometimes, all of those in one gathering. But we, if we're going to make room for the Spirit, we have to expect the Spirit to show up. We have to recognize what the Spirit's doing, and we have to be willing to collaborate. Because God just doesn't come in and do it. He created us to be part of this whole gig. So, I want to take a second to wait and see what the Lord might want to do. But before we do it, I want to introduce a friend to you. Scott, why don't you come up here? Hey, uh, Rick, would you give Scott the video? The, or does Jay have it? Here we go. Scott, you guys might know. Oh, this, the batteries are dead. Oh, here we go. We'll see. We got it? Okay. Scott and his wife Trish uh, live over in Bexley. Now, they used to be part of our church. And Scott, uh, before he was part of our church, had an interesting experience that I wanted him to tell you. So introduce yourself, like who you are, what you do, and then tell us a little of the story how you experienced Come Holy Spirit. All right. Uh, you've already introduced me. My name is Scott Kell, and I uh, used to come out here. John is, is one of my favorite people on the planet. I, uh, you're, you're really blessed, and I loved your message today. This was a, this was a great opportunity to relearn 
lessons from the past. I, uh, I appreciate it very much. But uh, I, I met John years ago. Uh, I was a member of Zenos Christian Fellowship. And at the time, we, were, uh, we had a leadership group in our, in our small group that had heard a lot about John Wimber and the Vineyard Movement. And we were curious about it. And so uh, we were invited to attend a, a videotape series, Signs and Wonders, uh, over at uh, some friends in Grandview, the Connie and Randy Anderson. And uh, so we, we went to our first meeting, and we watched the first tape, whatever that might be. And this, this is a long time ago. Some of the details might be a little bit off. I'm trying to think where there, I, I know John was there. Kathy, were you there? Kathy? I was in class, but I wasn't there that day. Okay. I was trying to, yeah, all right. So uh, there are a few witnesses here that, that, can, uh, that can verify. But, uh, but anyhow, I, I think I had some unique baggage going into that meeting. Uh, I, I am a, I'm a geologist. I'm a, I'm a scientist by upbringing. My father was an organic chemist. My mother was a metal med tech. And from the time I was six years old, I started telling people, that I was going to be a geologist, and I never wavered from that aspiration. Uh, when I go home this afternoon, I'm going to be dissolving sphalerite crystals out of calcite matrix with muriatic <laughs> acid, and my poor wife, Trish, has come to realize that's a pretty normal afternoon. <laughs> so uh, I'm a scientist. I was steeped in the scientific method. I was raised with the idea that you had to cautiously test and validate or falsify premises and, uh, and carefully evaluate the findings before you accepted uh, things as reality. Um, I also went to a church that uh, I, I benefited from tremendously and, and uh, valued and, and still value um, much of my time there. But they placed a very high value on critical thinking. They placed a very high value on the objective as found in the Word of God and were very suspicious about the subjective. They tended to scorn those persons who needed some sort of experiential validation of what was true as, as found in the, in, in the Word of God. And so both my scientific skepticism and my theological skepticism, I brought both of those into this meeting. Um, now, I'll tell you one thing I was highly skeptical of, and that is this phenomenon of people <laughs> fallen on the ground, the, the massacre that you, that you mentioned. I, uh, I, I viewed that as, as pretty much nonsense, and at best kind of mass hysteria. Uh, I, I, I saw no value in it. As a matter of fact, would, had someone told me what was going to happen, I probably wouldn't have come. So very resistive to this. I didn't know if you want to intersperse any questions or should I just keep going? Keep going. All right. So we listened to the first tape, and then afterwards, John said, well, let's, let's see what God has for us today. And so we bowed in prayer, and shortly thereafter, John said, there's a person here that is dealing with some pain in their upper left side of their back, near their shoulder. And I, I had a, a strained rhomboid muscle back by my clavicle. No big deal. I, I got it from lifting weights. I had it over and over and over again throughout my life in athletics. So I thought, well, certainly that can't be it. You know, we tend to project on God that he is, 
our own limitations in time and space, and we view him as so busy spinning all these billions of plates that certainly he's not going to want to waste his time on a strained muscle in my back. And so I kept looking around, and, and no one else raised their hand. And I thought, could this word be for me? And so I just kind of sheepishly raised my hand. John later shared that when he saw my hand go, go up, it was like, oh, darn, not him. <laughs> Didn't you? Isn't that right? Yeah. So, you know. Great uh, man of faith. <laughs> so John, John called people forward to, to pray, and uh, John put his hand on that spot on the left part of my shoulder. And have you ever been burnt by John's hand? How, how, raise your hands. No? Yeah. I, this was not like 98.7 comfortable warm. It felt like he had put an iron on my back. It was uncomfortably hot as he began to pray. I, I remember when I put my hand on your back, I just noticed that like, he moved away from me. Yeah. And it didn't feel hot to me, but, you know, and I, I just went... <laughs> <laughs> Well, so they began to, the, John began to pray and, and others followed suit. And I'm standing there. I was standing, I was standing straight up. And then all of a sudden, I had this sensation as if the energy in my body was draining head to toe. And I had no idea what was going on. Now, I've, I've been knocked unconscious. I was a football player. I have fainted. And all those kinds of things, you lose time. But in this particular situation, I felt the energy falling out of my body, head to toe, and I began to, I, mean, I went total ragdoll. I mean, it was, it was just a, a collapse, and had several people not caught me, I would have probably just fallen face forward onto the floor. I still remember that even though they broke my fall, I remember my face being smushed on the floor, and wishing someone would move me. It was, I had no muscle control whatsoever. I couldn't pick my head up and move it into a more comfortable position. Had someone, had there been a fire, I couldn't have got up. They would have had to drag me out by my feet. It literally, no ability, I, I was just in a heap on the floor. And it was frightening. My first thought, while I'm laying down there, and I'm listening to the prayers go on. I was never unconscious. I'm listening to the prayers, but I can't focus on them because I thought I was dying. And it was, it, so it took me a while to get to the place where I was not frightened by the experience, but allowing it to happen. And then and I began to hear the prayers over me uh, during this time. Um, again, this is not an experience that I would have sought. It's certainly not one that I would have expected. It's certainly not one that I would have been attracted to or preferred. But, you know, in light of the points that John was making, and that God came, he kind of blew away my expectations, he blew away my limitations. Uh, I like to be in control. I'm very self-conscious. Laying on the floor in a heap was not my idea of something that I wanted as a way that I wanted God to work in my life. Um, so, the prayer continued, and 
finally, uh, I was able to, to recover control and stand up, and sure enough, the, the, the muscular issue was gone. Uh, but much more important than that minor muscular issue was an, an awareness that God had met me in a way that I could not have uh, foreseen or expected um, or even asked for, for that matter. Other questions? What, what did you take away from that? Uh, what kind of, was there any deposit that you received during that, that, a positive benefit that came out of, besides just what you just mentioned there? A number. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier in your message was the issue of uncomfortable, uncomfortability. I, I like things that are black and white and in a box. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm not comfortable with things that are outside the way I define things. I've learned to be a lot less black and white in the way that I, when someone is describing to me the way that God has spoken or dealt with them, I'm a lot less prone to say, to dismiss that and, and say, nah, that's not God. You know, the disciples, when they're out in the boat, they didn't recognize Jesus because they'd never seen him walking on the water, right? They had to recognize that God doesn't always come to us in our prescribed manner. Sometimes he shows up with a, with a surprise. And uh, that's one of the things that's it's opened my mind to uh, other ways that God can move in our lives and bless us. Um, and that's uncomfortable, but it's, it's good. Jason. Ah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, okay, good recollection. Um, yeah, we were, uh, we were playing basketball up at a, at a racquetball court, and a good friend of mine uh, had a bad sprain on his ankle. We had to carry him off the uh, court and take him out into the car, and here, here's a bunch of Xenos guys that don't normally pray for people. And we, we carried him into the car, and then all of a sudden I realized... We're not, you know, we're we're thinking about how he'll go to the doctor tomorrow, but we weren't thinking about what God might do in that situation. And I said, "Why don't we pray over his ankle?" And uh, we prayed over his ankle, and no sooner he done, he said, "My ankle's fine." And he told me the next morning he he got up and uh, he hauled a sled full of firewood from the woods into his house, and uh, so that was kind of just a cool. Uh, yeah, you're right. Thanks, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Thank you, Jay. Because uh, we would have just expected him to go to the doctor, and we probably would have called him up the following week and say, what did the doctor say? How long is it going to take for you to heal up? We, we just uh, we didn't have that expectation. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> Scott, I, I was, I was uh, in that meeting uh, Scott asked so many hard questions that when he was the person that wanted prayer first, that's why I went, oh, my God. Please. You know, you want, you want to start with somebody who has some modicum of openness. <laughs> and then Scott had none. Uh, a lot of interesting things happened in those, those meetings, as uh, is, is interesting as what happened to Scott. So what I want to do just for a minute, just if you guys could give, give us a little space just to let God... Uh, work. Hey, Adam, would you come up and just play? Always kinds of helps. When we say come Holy Spirit, we're not asking God to be someplace he isn't already, because he's everywhere. Can't. Psalm 139, David pondered 
all these experiences in his life where he, he was at places where he thought God must not be there, and God was there. He was at this place. Oh, God surely couldn't be there, but God was there. And he realized that God, you know, knows, God's aware of us. And David was going through and being aware of God, but as he became aware of God, what he realized was God was aware of him. That's the breakthrough that everyone's looking for is where you begin to be aware that God's aware of you. Now, we kind of know that up here, but he wants us to know it. Because it's part of growing in our security and in our identity as children of God, is knowing we're loved by God and feeling it, not just knowing it on a theological, theoretical, philosophical level, as, as helpful as that can be, but it's supposed to lead to the experience of that in our lives. So we're just going to wait here for a second. And, you know, we've already said, come Holy Spirit. We've been talking about it. You know, you heard Scott's story. Some of you are here and the Spirit's already engaging you. And I just want you to...